Welcome to Common Ground Church Rondebosch, a community based in Cape Town, South Africa, who believe that if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. Our sermon podcast aims to unpack this reality rooted in scripture and dependent on God's spirit. Our Encountering Jesus series explores significant interactions that people had with Jesus in the New Testament. We see through these encounters just how deep His compassion is, witness His power and gentleness, and how encountering Him changes lives. Please continue listening for today's message. Cool. Good morning, everyone. As uh, Alan and Lou said, I'm Josh. For those I haven't uh, yet met, and I'm known for being married to this beautiful doctor, we'll see. Uh, but I also lead the students' ministry. That is what my, my role here. And we've had a busy week this week. It has been chock-a-block full of events. We've had what we call O-Week, which is the orientation week, um, mainly based up at UCT uh, for students who are down at Cape Town for most of them the first time. And um, man, it's been such an exciting week. We've had literally hundreds of students come through, um, through the doors per se and come to our events. On campus, we managed to get onto campus for the first time um, up on, uh, at Plaza Day, which is where all these societies put up their, their tents and they, they basically try and attract a bunch of students. And we had a hanging bar over there. It had nothing to do with church, which was quite confusing for a lot of people, but it did bring a big crowd. And I think one of my favorite, favorite moments Oh yes, so basically it's just a bar that you hang onto and the challenge is you see how long you can hang for. That's basically it. Oh yes, yeah, not, not, a, not, a, not a hanging bar or a, or a hanging bar. Um, a hanging bar, yeah. Um, the record was I think one minute 45 seconds which is pretty good. Yeah, the bar rotates. If you want, I can show you a diagram of it after the, after the message. You're welcome to come and ask more. But um, one of my favorite moments was the, a first-year student actually came and signed up for our society and then got straight into serving. was just like, hey, I'm here. Hold my bag. I'm going to go and help with this thing and rally people. And it's just amazing to know how God is bringing um, these students into this church. And, and uh, yeah, we're just so grateful that we can actually do this ministry. One of the things that I, I love most about the student age group is how, for probably the first time in many of their lives, they're actually starting to work out what is it that I actually want? What are, what are the things that I want? What are the things that I wanna build my life upon? Uh, who are the type of friends I wanna make? Who's the type of person I wanna become? And they're doing this without kind of most parents around. Um, it's no longer what their parents are saying they must do. It's actually, hey, what do I wanna live for? And for many students, this is thrilling, it's maddening, it's exhausting, it's exciting, it's all of these things. Um, but it is, it is an amazing time where students are often open to exploring um, new things and especially things related to faith. And while I, I know that that is very true for students, I'm aware that many people in this room, in fact, like myself included, haven't entirely worked out. What is it that you exactly want? It's not as if all the building blocks suddenly fall into place in your student years. And so I'm aware that for many of us in this room, that would also be quite a pertinent question. What is it that you actually want? And the text that we're gonna be going into today in John chapter four is gonna hinge on that question. What is your most deep desire? What is it that you are longing for? And um, we're gonna have a closer look at that. 
We are in the middle of a series called Encountering Jesus. And uh, it's been an amazing series where we are looking at encounters that various people have with the person of Jesus. And we wanna know who he is, what he's about, what he's like. And so we look at this through the lens of everyday people as they meet with Jesus. And today we are gonna be looking at how an outcast encounters Jesus. We're gonna explore this text under two headings. Firstly, how it is a surprising encounter. There is so much that happens in here that you wouldn't expect. So it's a surprising encounter. But secondly, how it's a relevant encounter for us today. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we are gonna jump into the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us today. God, we thank you that you have written a book and in it we get to see who you truly are. Lord, we thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself and we pray, Holy Spirit, just come and present yourself amongst us here this morning. We wanna have soft hearts. We wanna see what you have to say about us, about yourself. We wanna meet with the person of Jesus. So come and, come and reveal him to us. We, we welcome you here. Amen. Cool, let's look at verse one. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And after, uh, sorry, and he had, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So just picture the scene. Jesus is, is traveling, he's on the move, and we arrive at this moment where it's the middle of the day, it's boiling hot probably, Middle Eastern climate is really, really, really hot, and so Jesus is tired. He's, he's tired from his journey, and he's, he's sitting down by this famous well. He's all alone, his disciples have gone to get some food, and surprisingly, here comes a woman of Samaria, a Samaritan woman. And Jesus decides to ask this woman for a drink. She's shocked and confused because there's no ways that Jesus should be caught interacting with her. Samaritans and Jews just don't get along well. There's a long history of conflict between these two groups of people. And so when she comes to the well, seeing a Jewish man, she probably thinks, hey, I'm, I'm gonna be ignored. And many Jews would have even thought that if they were to share a flask with the Samaritan person that they would actually become ceremonially unclean. And all of a sudden, Jesus asks her this question, give me a drink. Instead of directly responding to her confusion, Jesus actually then goes on to offer her some water. So according to Jesus, the surprising part here is not that he's actually interacted with her asking her for water, but the surprising part is that she hasn't then in response asked him for a drink, for this living water, the water of God. Now by this stage, this woman is probably thinking that Jesus is some sort of a con artist. 
right? Someone who intros their sales pitch by asking for what they're about to sell you. So perhaps Jesus is some sort of water salesman. I don't know, maybe that was a thing back in the day. And um, we're gonna see where the, the narrative takes us in verse 11. The woman says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw this water with and the well is deep. Where, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and he drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You can almost hear the element of intrigue and suspicion in this woman's voice about what this is that Jesus is offering. Right? Where, firstly, where's his bucket? How, how does he plan to get the so-called living water when he doesn't have a bucket? If he's able to provide precious water in this dry climate, well then, he must be greater than even Jacob. Jacob, the person in the, in the Old Testament in Genesis who was the person who dug this well. Jesus has to be greater than him, or perhaps Jesus is actually just a little bit mad. Either way, she's somewhat interested in what he has to offer. This water that she was gonna get from this well, well, it was only gonna quench her thirst for a couple hours, but Jesus seems to imply that what he's gonna give her is gonna ban thirst entirely. This, this water has to be some sort of miracle water. And this, this would be so key for, for a woman of Samaria because she would be making this trek up a hill from the town every single day. It would have been a couple kilometers in this hot climate to go and get this water. It would have been tiresome. She would have expended a lot of energy and um, she would have had to carry these heavy jars back down. So she's naturally quite intrigued. Let's look at verses 16 to 18. Jesus then says to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And at this point, we, should, we probably thinking, whoa, Jesus, where, where did that come from? How have we been talking about water and you suddenly asking about her husband? This just seems to have uh, gone from zero to 100 real quick. And uh, we go from this spiritual misunderstanding in a moment to the most painful part of this woman's life, her failed relationships and her broken sexual past. In one moment, Jesus has pierced through a facade that she had had up. She was technically correct. She did not have a husband, but she was masking the painful reality that her previous marriages and her current situationship were deeply broken. A situationship is what the younger folk call uh, a relationship that is not formal. Let me just clarify that. <laughs> so if you're like me, you have probably missed a key element of this feature. If you're used to getting water from taps, perhaps you don't know that it's quite strange for someone to be going to get water from a well in the middle of the day. In the middle of the day. The hottest point in the day is when this woman decides to make this long, tedious trip, right? Nobody would have done that. This would have been far more normal to, to do in the morning, the early morning or the late evening when the temperature is much cooler. And in fact, what would have been quite normal is that it would have been a social activity. The women would go together in groups to go and get this water. And so Jesus picks up on something. Why is this woman coming to the well at this time of the day? 
He doesn't miss that, and he's aware she is avoiding something. In fact, he miraculously reveals that he knows her thoroughly. He knows her source of avoidance. So Jesus takes this seemingly normal conversation and goes right to her heart through the most painful part of her story. Let's look at verses 19 to 20. The woman then says to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. Now again, strange way. There's, there's not a natural flow in the conversation. Hey, by the way, I know you don't have a husband. Oh, you must be a prophet. So tell me where we are supposed to worship, right? Having touched this nerve, it's clear that this woman is probably trying to deflect the attention of the conversation away from that vulnerable point. And is that not so similar to many of us when God presses onto something in our lives, asks something of an area in our souls that probably is, is a source of deep pain and hurt that we then turn to some theological question. Oh, well, what does the Bible have to say about this? Um, instead of actually listening to what Jesus is trying to say. She tries to wrangle her way out of this line of conversation by asking this theological question. And amazingly, Jesus is gentle and gracious with her. He goes along the line of conversation that she is taking him. And he decides to give such a rich teaching on worship. You would think that Jesus wouldn't really entertain her question on worship, right? It's probably, you'd probably think that he'd say something along the lines of, look lady, of all the people who are gonna be asking about how to worship, I can tell you, you're, you don't have to be one of them. You, you've, you've messed up, right? You don't need to know about worship, but he doesn't do anything like that. He continues in verse 21 by saying, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So while she had essentially been asking Jesus, where is the center of worship? Is it on this mountain where they were or is it in Jerusalem? Jesus responds by directing her attention not to the where of worship, but to the how and the whom of worship. How should she worship and whom should she worship? This is incredibly good to, to sit in, especially for our times of corporate worship. And, and it goes much further than simply raising our hands and singing songs. This is a heart posture that, is, that Jesus is referring to here. But regardless, this woman is only marginally interested, right? As long as the attention is off that painful part of her story, hey, she's cool. So that's why she says in verse 25 to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So she's almost saying to Jesus, all right, all right, it's clear you know some stuff, that's pretty cool, but you know what, I'm gonna take it from Messiah. When Messiah comes, that's when I'll be prepared to listen. He's gonna tell me everything I need to know. I'm kind of interested in what you have to say, but I'm all right for now, thanks, I'll wait for the Messiah. And when she's talking about Messiah, she's talking about the one that was prophesied in the Old Testament, the one who was to be the savior of the world, the chosen one. So can you picture her face when Jesus goes on to say, I who speak to you am he. 
I who speak to you am he. This, this isn't just some Jewish man at a well. This isn't just someone who is greater than Jacob. This isn't just a prophet. This isn't a con artist, a salesman, or a madman. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. He's the one that the Old Testament, all those pages were written about. He's the one that previous generations have dreamed to see, and he is now speaking to this woman at a well, in the flesh. Hot, sweaty, tired Jesus, the Messiah, is speaking to this woman. Jesus, God himself, has chosen to reveal his true identity to someone like this, whose life was littered with sexual impurity. And the effect of this revelation that Jesus is the Messiah completely transforms this woman. Not only does it transform her, but it transforms the town in which she is living as well. Let's look at verse 27. Just then, his disciples come back. They marvel that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into, into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Now it's genuinely incredible to think about what this moment must have been like. Just picture the woman who is desperately trying to avoid this, this town, desperately trying to avoid people, so much so that she walks in the heat of the day to get water, is now running back into the town, the people, the very people that she was trying to avoid to say, guys, I found a man who told me everything I ever did, which is a little bit strange, right? Some people probably like, how does this guy know that? Or, or man, that must be quite a long list. But what's key here is that she is emboldened. There's something in her story where she's obviously met someone that has so radically transformed her, she's run back to the place she was trying to avoid. She's declaring that this person, can this person be the Christ? He knows me to my core. He knows me at my deepest level. The town was probably more blown away by the fact that she was boldly saying this than her actual words. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. So much so that they actually do end up coming up the hill back to the well. If we're gonna skip ahead now to verse 39, we see this. Thirty-nine. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of that woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, "It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world." So in this surprising encounter with all these twists. We see this sinful Samaritan outcast and she meets Jesus. She's radically transformed. She goes back home and shouts it from the rooftops as it were. And indeed the whole town then comes to see the person of Jesus. So how is this a relevant encounter for us today? How does this speak to those of us in this room? From, from this passage, I see four things for us to focus on and to take away. Firstly, you are not too far from God. You are not too far from God. Nobody in this room is too far from God. And this text clearly shows that. Do you notice that of all the people that Jesus could interact with, this is probably one of the most unlikely people, right? And yet this is the person that God meets with. She's unschooled, she's insignificant, she's a rejected female Samaritan peasant. She's got an incorrect theology. She's of the wrong group of people, she's morally bankrupt 
and Jesus decides to meet with her. He's, he, he's not put off by her objections. He goes along the flow of the conversation that she is taking him on and he patiently answers her and invites her to know him more deeply, to know him more intimately. And this is completely in contrast with the people that would have typically been thought to be close to God, right? The, the trained religious elite, the Jewish elite, powerful, respected, and yet Jesus is revealing himself to her. So it doesn't matter who you are. Jesus is happy to meet with you. He's completely fine to break social taboos to do so. And the surprise is not that he would be open to a relationship with her or with you. The surprise is that he'd be open to a relationship with anyone. He is open to a relationship with anyone. Paul touches on this theme in Acts chapter 17, verse 26 and 27, when he says this, referring to God, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each of us. God has placed everyone in this room exactly where you are meant to be. In the right moment in history, the right time, in the right location in geography, God has put you here. And his intention with each of you is that you would seek him, that you would know him. And he's not far off. So especially to anyone in the room who is here and not a follower of Jesus, to anyone who is exploring the claims of Christ, I think there are two key things for you to take from this. The one is that you are welcome here. At Common Ground, we really wanna be a place where you are able to explore, where you're able to seek the person of God in, in, as revealed in Jesus. And we wanna, we wanna be able to journey with you, hopefully as lovingly and patiently as Jesus does. The second thing to note is that it is key to keep seeking him. Keep seeking him. Know that God is not far from you and that you are not too far from him. On to the second point that the story reveals why it's relevant a relevant encounter is that you are desperately thirsty, thirsty for God himself. You are desperately thirsty for God himself. Some people here today are aware of an intense longing in your life for something more. You've, you've gone through life and you've, you've taken a few knocks, you've tried a whole bunch of different things and actually you know that there's something that hasn't quite been met in, in the deepest part of your being, the, 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 the depths of your souls is longing for something more. And you're here looking. Some of you perhaps aren't aware that there is a deep longing or thirst in you. And I think what this text shows is that actually there is in every one of us. The Samaritan woman wasn't aware of her thirst, but Jesus is loving enough to show her how thirsty she is. That is why he goes to the most, most vulnerable part of this woman's story. Right? It, would seem, it would seem kind of cruel if he was just wanting to highlight sin for sin's sake. Like, oh, you've, you've messed up and that's that. That's not the point that Jesus has here. He intentionally opens up this conversation on her greatest sin because it is in her greatest sin that she's most aware of a hopelessness, of a need, of a, of a guilt. She's painfully aware of a thirst and her sin exposes that. He loves her enough to, to highlight how if she continues down this line of pursuing these broken relationships, of pursuing sexual experience, it will not satisfy. And so for some, for some in the room, her pursuit is your pursuit. 
You think that sexual experimentation is gonna fill your cup, but it really won't. The story makes clear. For others, perhaps it is an amazing career. Perhaps it is perfect family relationships. You can fill in the blank. These things, these pursuits of your life, perhaps they cycles, they are not gonna satisfy. They are just evidence of a deeper thirst. So when we run from guy to guy to guy or to, to girl to girl to girl, from hobby to hobby to hobby, from whatever it is, it is just indicative that you are actually desperately thirsty. And Tim Keller, um, he writes in his book on prayer, something quite shocking that I found it shocking because of how much it resonated with me. He, he kind of makes the point that many of us are actually not aware that we are so desperately thirsty. We, we fill our, our lives with so much entertainment, so much busyness, going from to-do lists ad nauseum to the point where we, we're not aware that there is, a, there is a thirst. It's in those still moments where if you're honest, you're actually desperately thirsty. He says this, as long as you think that there is a pretty good chance that you will achieve some of your dreams, as long as you think you have a shot at success, you experience your inner emptiness as drive and your anxiety as hope. And so you can remain almost completely oblivious to how deep your thirst actually is. Most of us tell ourselves that the reason we remain unfulfilled is because we simply haven't been able to achieve our goals. It's when I get that thing or hit that milestone. And so we can live almost our entire lives without admitting to ourselves the depth of our spiritual thirst. That is why the few people in life who actually do reach or exceed their dreams are shocked to discover that these longed for experiences do not satisfy. Indeed, they can actually enhance their inner emptiness by their presence. All of us, all of us are thirsty for something more. But friends, this passage gives us a beautiful hope. The reality is that we were made for something more. We were made for something more. That desire is not meaningless. That longing, that want is not meaningless. Actually, it has a purpose. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says the following, the Christian says that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. Creatures are not born with desires unless there is an accompanying satisfaction. So if a baby feels hunger, well, then there is such a thing as food. If a duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. If, if a man feels sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. And if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Is that just not beautiful? The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably the earthly pleasures that we experience were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. This woman on the way to the well is a beautiful echo or image or mirage of her desperate thirst for something far more than just water. I, I loved having a conversation last year up on campus with um, a student, a very intelligent student who was agnostic and he could give me a whole long list of detailed reasons why I could not prove God, 
and it was after a certain talk, and I said to him, well, was there anything in the talk that you did resonate with? Was there anything that, that you were like, hmm, this has given you something to think about? And the one thing he said was, when Christians talk about that inner longing, that is something that the human experience can't deny, right? That is something that the human experience can't deny. We all are made for something more. And the beautiful reality is that Jesus, the Messiah in this text, is coming to you today and saying, I have got living water that is gonna satisfy you. He is offering God himself, the living water, the satisfying, transforming, eternal life that comes from the Holy Spirit. Jesus' invitation to drink is to believe in him, to trust him. It's far more than just a mental acknowledgement that he is Lord. It's a personal relationship with God. And for, for Christ followers, it's tempting to think of this moment as a once-off moment. When we first come to faith, hey, yeah, that was the moment when, when I, I, I enjoyed some deep satisfaction. And, and thereafter, you kind of just continue on in your life. But that doesn't make sense. If this uh, relationship from Jesus, if this offer from Jesus to drink of the living water is about a relationship with Him, well, then it's an ongoing thing. So for many Christians, Actually, we are simultaneously the most satisfied people on the planet and also are longing for more of God. It's almost like our souls are a cup that is filled to the brim with the, this living water and yet the cup is also growing. We continue to long for him. This isn't just a once off moment. And this has been so good for me to meditate on as I've um, prepared for this, this preach. I, my personality is uh, ingrained with an achiever mentality. I really wanna achieve. And this plays itself out in a whole bunch of different areas of my life. And sometimes it's really helpful, right? It, it gives you perseverance. Um, but sometimes it actually feels quite burdensome. I don't, I don't feel a sense of purpose unless I'm achieving. And the beautiful reality for me in this text is that I can achieve to the nth degree. I can have the whole world in any shape or form and yet only Jesus is gonna satisfy. And guess what? I have him. I have him. I, my testimony can be like this woman's testimony. I can declare it from the tops of the roofs that Jesus is mine and I am his. My soul, just like your soul, is desperately thirsty for God. On to the third point that makes this a relevant encounter for us. We are not to hide our shame. Don't hide your shame, bring your shame. Don't hide your shame, bring your shame. Perhaps some of you can immediately resonate with this woman. You have come in, perhaps um, not many people in here know you, and yet you're, you're deeply aware of your shame, and, and maybe others in your life know about your shame, and you feel like this woman. And for her, every hot and sweaty walk to get to this well and to bring water back home would have been a constant reminder of her shortcomings of her failures, of how she's an outcast, of how she's not wanted every single time. It is tiresome. And perhaps her journey to the well is your journey. You're aware of that. You're walking in the heat of the day right now. But for others, perhaps you don't think this really applies to you. Perhaps you're well known, you've got a good reputation, and yet actually that might be also a little bit of a facade. Um, it only provides a superficial kind of comfort. You afraid to find for that you're afraid that people will find out who you truly are, and so you you too feel this shame. You too feel this this hot kind of walk, just in a little bit of a different way. The beauty in this text is that Jesus is not put off by her sin. 
Jesus moves towards her. It isn't the outcast that is reaching Jesus in the story, it is Jesus reaching her. She didn't know him, but he knew her. And did you notice how gentle he was with her? Even in the moment of showing her her most vulnerable and exposed sin, he makes sure to say, hey, you've, you've told the truth. There's an element in what you've said that is right. I'm gonna commend you for that. He's so gentle in the way he interacts with her. And so if you are dealing with shame, can I just encourage you to bring it to Jesus? Don't go on those hot walks all alone by yourself in the heat of the day to get something that's only gonna satisfy for a little bit of time. Come to Jesus. Jesus already knows. Can't hide it from him. He already knows and he wants to redeem. I love this quote from Tim Keller. It talks about how the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the truth. That is the, the gospel truth that all of us, any one of us who's carrying shame needs to cling on to. We need to come to Jesus. The last point is that you have a mission from God. You have a mission from God. We're gonna pick the story up again in verse 31. And if you just remember at that point in the story, Jesus' disciples have just come back. They've got the food, they're back with him. And there's been a bit of an awkward silence as Jesus is finishing his chat with this woman. They're kind of like, what is she doing here? We don't really know. We're not gonna ask questions though. And, and she leaves and so they, are, they remain with him. And we pick this up in verse 31. The disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Has, has someone given him something? You can picture this probably, I, I would be annoyed if I was a disciple in this moment. Like, Surely, surely you would have told me this before I walked into town to get you food. But Jesus goes on to say, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. They are ready. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap, for which, for reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So Jesus here is aware that the disciples would have been very familiar with farming and agriculture. And, and he says to them, guys, you know what this is like. You know how to tell based on the seasons, based on the crop, based on how your fields are doing, when the harvest is ready. You're aware that in four months time, there's gonna be a bunch of harvest. I'm gonna ask you to put on your spiritual lenses and to see that in the spiritual sense, the harvest is ready. The harvest is ready. Look and see, there are people who are ready for this gospel message. And in fact, Jesus is encouraging them not to wait four months. This is urgent, don't wait four months. Don't wait four months. He can change people's lives. You can wonder what's happening as the woman has gone into the town and she's speaking to the people and Jesus is having this encounter with his disciples now, that the woman and the rest of the town are on their way up the hill as Jesus says to them, lift up your eyes, look and see. The field is white, the harvest is ready. This isn't simply metaphorical. While they were saying this, 
the very town, the harvest itself was on its way to meet Jesus, was on its way to be reaped. So to those who are Christ followers, the encouragement here is to go. Our spiritual moment is, is ready, it is ripe. There is a harvest that's need, that needs to be sown, or reaped rather. And that's why Jesus says elsewhere, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is, this is a prayer for us as a church to be praying. Pray for the laborers. This is something that uh, in the students' ministry team, we, we pray for. We are so aware that many of the students who are with us for three, four years, maybe a little bit longer if they're lucky, are gonna go all over the world. Last night in this hall, there, was, there were people from Madagascar, from Kenya, from Tanzania, all down here for the first time. And our prayer is that God would get a hold of them, that he would raise up laborers who are gonna go and reap in fields far from here. That is a prayer for us to pray. But it's not just for them, it's for us. Notice two things briefly. Firstly, the Samaritan woman brought this harvest to Jesus by telling everyone what he had done for her. Right? She went and spoke about how Jesus had met with her. And so the encouragement is for us to be sharing our testimonies. How has God moved in your life? So much so that you are simply emboldened to share this with others. And the second thing is also to notice about how Jesus talks about how satisfaction is found in God again. For Jesus, doing this is not something that he kind of begrudgingly carries out. He doesn't go into the world begrudgingly because the Father has forced him to. No, this is actually food for him. To do the Father's work is nourishing to his soul. So it begs the question, what kind of work is nourishing for our souls? Because it's not just Jesus who's been sent. Verse 38 makes that very clear. Jesus says to his, to his disciples, I sent you to reap. Friends, Jesus has encouraged all of us, every one of us who considers themselves a Christ follower to go. He has sent us. And there is no greater work than we can give ourselves to. This is deeply fulfilling work. I'm gonna start to come into a land, so our landing, can the band join me up on stage? A challenge and invitation from this passage is that we would come to Jesus, that we would come and experience him for ourselves. I love the word that Gulam gave um, at the start of, of this service, come to Jesus, that picture of Jesus on the shore inviting his disciples towards him. Come to him, he will satisfy when he's talking about worship to the woman, the Samaritan woman, he has these two phrases in verse 21 and verse 23. He says, the hour is coming. The hour is coming and is now here. And always in the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus mentions this, the hour is coming, he's referring to his own death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And so what's so key to note in the story is that the way to the Father, the way to worship him, the way to experience that deeply soul-satisfying living water is through the person of Jesus. It is through faith, through trusting in him, trusting in his work on the cross for your lives to drink of this, this water. He did this for you, he did this for me, that we would experience this kind of satisfaction. Can I ask us to stand? I'm gonna pray for us. And then we're gonna to respond to Jesus in worship. Let's close our eyes. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for this word to us. We're so grateful, Jesus, 
that you are not far off from anyone. You are near to us. Jesus, we thank you for your patience, your gentleness in dealing with us. Thank you, Jesus, that we can bring our shame to you. Lord Jesus, I just wanna pray for those in this room who are experiencing immense shame. God, that you would move towards them in this moment, that that you'd give them a, a boldness to take a step towards you. Thank you that you have your arms wide open. Thank you that you heal that kind of shame. Lord, I pray that you would also just reveal thirst in this room where people are hardened to this idea that that they're actually desperately thirsty. God, I pray that you would just show them that they are thirsty, Not, not for the sake of highlighting sin, but for the sake of knowing that you satisfy the thirst. Jesus, come and satisfy the thirst in this room. Every one of us is desperate for you. And we thank you that you do satisfy. The words of David in Psalm 63 say, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I'll bless you as long as I live and in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied. Lord Jesus, as we worship you now, we thank you that we are not confined to a location. We thank you that worship isn't the act of singing. It isn't the act of raising our hands. It is the act of coming to you, of giving you the glory, of ascribing worth to you. And so Jesus, we thank you that you satisfy us. We wanna bless your name and make much of you.